Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. I want us to turn back to 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, so if you have a copy of God's Word in tow, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. When Jesus was, was sharing his final moments, which are recorded for us with his disciples in the upper room, before going to the cross, he gave them a command. In John chapter 13 and in verses 34 and 40, 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, he says, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And what's interesting about that, that verse, as he begins there in verse 34, is he calls it a new commandment. And the now, what's new about this new command isn't that we're to love one another. That's something that is, uh, was stated clearly under the law of Moses. That was, that was not new, in a new command. It wasn't new in the sense that Jesus hadn't said it before, because as, um, as we know through the gospel records, uh, numerous occasions throughout his ministry, Jesus told the crowds his disciples were to love God. That's the first and greatest commandment. And to the second, he said, is like unto it, to love God. Uh, your neighbor as yourself. So we, we understand that. Even to love our enemies, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, and those who treat us poorly. This is, this is the character of, um, of one who follows Christ. So this wasn't something new that he had not said in his ministry. What makes this a new command is the manner in which we are to love one another that he lays out here in these verses. He says, we are to love one another even as I have loved you. The standard of comparison is Jesus' love for us, a love that was exemplified in the preceding verses. You'll see earlier in chapter 13 of John, uh, he is washing their feet as a, um, as a humble servant. So in that sense, he, he models that love and that humility. But it is a love that, of course, we know is demonstrated by his atoning work at the cross that was about to take place in the place of sinners like you and like me. So Jesus' command to love uh, is new in the sense that it's the manner in which we're to call, but it's also uh, new with respect to the new order that it ushers in and mandates. As Jesus gives this command, he he is ushering in and uh, mandating a new order. The old covenant was good and right on its own, but it was not God's final word. It wasn't God's final uh, a message to his people. Paul says, as he later on, that it was a tutor to lead us to Christ as the Savior. It was to give way, the old covenant was to give way to the new covenant, inaugurated at that very meal, at that very uh, uh, evening. And it was this new covenant that promised a transformed mind and heart for all who are reconciled to God through faith in Christ, that not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. All the peoples of the world would be blessed in Abraham. Jesus' new command that we love one another ushers in this new order, obligating us in some imperfect way to reflect the bond of love that exists between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't just obligate us to do this. It privileges us with the responsibility to proclaim the truth about the triune God to a watching world. That's why Jesus ends in verse 35 by saying, By this love, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. This underscores what we have said throughout this study of 1 Corinthians 13, 
that when Paul or John or Peter or Jude or any of the other New Testament writers speak of love in the New Testament, we have got to purge from our minds this worldly kind of warped contemporary notions of love that have infiltrated our hearts and our culture and to bring theological realities Uh, the theological realities that are invested in that term to center stage. We need to bring that out and understand it. Namely, that Christian love, we said, is something otherworldly. It's not natural. It's not not natural. It's supernatural. It It is heaven's life manifest in us on earth through his people. And secondly, this other important theological reality, that biblical love is inescapably centered on Jesus Christ and his cross work, the self-giving grace of God in sending his son into the world to make atonement for sin and to rescue sinners from the wrath to come. That is, we said, the highest and the grandest demonstration of love that we in the world will ever experience or know. Christian love, then, is above all a spirit-wrought attitude which displays itself. It demonstrates itself in choosing the benefit of others ahead of our own interests for the glory of God. We have to understand that that is what love is talking about. We are to love one another, Paul says, or Jesus says, even as I have loved you. And therefore John, as he writes in his short little epistle in 1 John, says, Beloved, if God so loved us, the implication is we ought to love one another. Without this love, this otherworldly, Christ-centered love, Paul tells us in our text in 1 Corinthians 13, we're nothing. We are nothing. It profits us nothing. He says, if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and, and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, he says, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. We said if we're missing that critical ingredient of love, it doesn't matter whether we have the most spectacular gifts of speech and knowledge or possess the sum total of divine wisdom or give our lives away, we said, in stunning acts of sacrifice and dedication. It doesn't matter without love, he says, it counts for nothing. It counts for nothing. So we said verses 1 to 3 lay down the consequences when love is absent. Verses 4 to 7, which is what we're going to look at this morning, spell out the characteristics when love is present. So verses 1 to 3 is the consequences when love is absent. 4 to 7, which we're going to look at in detail this morning, is, uh, gives us characteristics of love when it is present. There are certain fruits of love that are unmistakable. And, and last Sunday, we looked at just the very first one, love is patient. We did a deep dive on this idea of long-suffering, love is long-suffering. And the reason we did that, we said, is because so many of us have uh, broken relationships that we're navigating one way or another, Uh, pastorally, that comes up again and again and again. It is one of the most common issues we face in life. And in almost every instance, we said those relationships become strained, they become uh, stressed and difficult because of some wound that we have experienced from that person, whether that's a real injury or hurt or even if it's imagined. And so 
We said if we're going to move toward one another in love and, and build one another up in the body of Christ, which is the whole purpose of this section, and if we're going to move toward unbelievers with the gospel, we need to understand that biblical love is patient. It is long-suffering. It is To be long-suffering, we said, means to patiently endure wrongs done to us by others. And when someone who is patient um, is walking in love, they are, by God's grace, able to steadfastly, we said, absorb the offenses of others against us, whatever those may be. And we looked at the root of patience or long-suffering and its fruit. But as we see in the text, and as we look at our text this morning in verses 4 to 7, there are so many other characteristics. Some are stated in the positive and some are stated in the negative. But, and so what I want to do in the time that we have left this morning is I want us to consider the, the remaining fruits of love that together sketch out this beautiful portrait in Scripture of the mature, spirit-filled Christian. If we are going to obey Jesus' command to love one another, if we're going to follow Paul's command, as he says in chapter 16, verse 14, that all that we do be done in love, then we need to meditate for a few moments this morning on what that love looks like in the context of our everyday relationships. What is it? What does it look like? What are its characteristics? And we're going to break it down because there's so many points, so many little statements here. We're going to break it, this portrait of love down into three sections this morning. Three. We're going to see love sketched using positive space. We're going to see love drawn using negative space. And we're going to see love accented with some final flourishing pen strokes. So we begin in verse 4, where we left off last Sunday, and we see love sketched using positive space. What do I mean by positive space? Well, I'm not an artist, um, but I have taken a couple of introductory art classes over the years. And um, one of the first things I learned about drawing or sketching is this idea of positive space and negative space on your works template, whatever that is, paper, canvas, or whatever. Normally, the positive space is the, is the object that you're drawing or painting, and the negative space is the background that surrounds it. And in the beginning of verse 4, Paul is sketching out this portrait of love using positive space as he describes in um, the beginning of verse 4 what love is or what it does. And we saw last Sunday that love is patient. And this, of course, is how God deals with us. He deals with us in a patient, long-suffering way. Whether we acknowledge it or not, God is incredibly long-suffering toward us. And if you have life and breath this morning... We have to understand it's because God is long-suffering with us. He is being patient with us in all of our sin. But love is not just um, passive, patiently absorbing the hurts of others like some kind of you know, supernatural punching bag. Love is very much active because alongside patience, he says here in verse 4, that love is kind. Love is kind. Patience and kindness represent love's kind of passive and active movements. Um, this term kindness is sometimes translated um, good in other portions of the New Testament, like uh, later on in chapter 15 and verse 33, where Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals. So it has this idea of kind of moral goodness, but it also is translated other places as it is here as kind. 
In Ephesians 4 and verse 32, Paul says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. To be kind is to freely, to freely provide something beneficial or good to someone else as an act of kindness, as a demonstration of that kindness. So, so love chooses of its own volition to do good to another person. That's what's bound up in this term, kindness. That might mean doing good to their inner person through um, instruction. We might uh, guide them into something. We might set, we can be kind in the way that we set a righteous example. Um, we could be kind in the sense of encouraging them with our words and, or warning them off of something that would hurt them. It would be um, harmful. But it also includes freely doing good to others in outward things, uh, material things, helping them when tough situations arise. Um, a number of years ago, I remember in our church in Florida, there was a gentleman who was a large animal veterinarian, and he, uh, out of his, out of his, the generosity of his heart and his, and his love for others, he and a team of other large animal vets would travel to third world countries where People's survival depended on their livestock being healthy and strong and able to, to work. And he would go and he would, he would bring medicine and he would diagnose issues and teach and train local um, you know, veterinarians the best practices uh, of how to care for these animals. Why? Because, uh, because without them, they, they would starve. They would have no way of providing for their just basic needs. That was an act of, of kindness on his part. We can be kind to people by alleviating their suffering and by advancing their well-being, by adding to their happiness and comfort in life, you know, and bearing their burdens, as Paul says in Galatians 6 and verse 2. There's so many ways that love's kindness can be manifest. Love that's kind freely, freely does good to both friends and enemies, good and evil, thankful people and unthankful people. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 15, he says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for another and for all people. There's no, there's no distinguished, there's no qualifiers on there. It's not like only do good to, to the people who do good to us or those who are nice to us. No, he says we do good to one another as believers and to all men. This is how our Heavenly Father treats us. His mercies are new every morning. The scriptures tell us he, he causes his, the, the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He causes uh, a rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He, he gives us fruitful seasons and satisfies our hearts with food and gladness, Paul says in Acts chapter 14 and verse 17. The, the clearest evidence of love's kindness is in the doing of it. We, we talk about being kind, but kindness reveals itself in the doing of it. James chapter 2, as he speaks of a dead faith versus a living faith, he says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their bodies, is what use is that? Or John in 1 John 3 and verse 17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, he asks this rhetorical question, how does the love of God abide in him? And the obvious answer is it doesn't. It doesn't. Love, Christian love, 
does good to others, whether they deserve it or not, and whether they appreciate it or not. So we see that love is sketched here in the positive space in being loving. It is long-suffering, and he says it is kind. Love is kind. Now, as Paul continues then on to verse 4, we see love now being drawn using negative space. He describes for us what love is not or what love does not do. And by that contrast, then sketches out this image of love, of love for us. And there are, of course, uh, I think there's eight different uh, characteristics of love that are listed in these few verses. He says first that love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. This term, jealous, can be used in a positive sense in the terms of kind of zeal for something, but it can also be used in a negative sense, which is how he uses it here, to speak of, of stoking rivalry or competition with, with other people. Um, envy or jealousy, that's what the idea is, 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 is a spirit. It's, a, it's an attitude in our hearts, but it manifests itself in posturing for exalted positions or maneuvering and scheming to win, in, win followers and tear others down and, and put ourselves in their place. But love, he says, Christian love doesn't bristle at the success of other people. It doesn't, um, it doesn't balk at the giftedness of others or the influence that other people manifest. It, and it certainly doesn't scheme to tear those people down so that you can take their place. Love, he says, humbly accepts its lot with a spirit of contentment. It rejoices and glories in the successes of other people. This is what we need to understand about love when he says love is not jealous. It, you know, we can rejoice with those who rejoice as believers. How, how many relationships in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, how many relationships have been destroyed because jealousy has ruled the heart? How many churches have been split because jealousy holds court in some subset of the leadership or some subset of the membership. Christian love, then we have to understand, is not jealous. It does not stoke rivalry, rivalry and competition with others. But he goes on to say that love is not just not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. This term brag is an, a kind of a unique term. It it's basically means to be a windbag or a blowhard. Um, this is someone who has an inordinate desire to call attention to themselves. Um, in their minds, they never get the credit they deserve because they think of themselves in overly exalted terms. And so they constantly want others to recognize them. They constantly want others to affirm their greatness, their accomplishments, their skills. And when other people don't do that to their liking, they do it for themselves. They will do it for themselves. These are the folks that always manage to bring the conversation back to them. We know those people. We probably have some of them in our families. It doesn't matter what the topic is. They always manage to make it about them. I think there was, an era, there was a comedian a number of years ago, and he had a little bit, and he says, Never tell a two-wisdom-tooth tale. Because anytime you tell a two-wisdom-tooth tale... There's going to be someone that's going to run over the top with their four-wisdom-tooth tail and tell you about how unbelievable their, you know, their experience of having their wisdom teeth taken out is. And so 
He says, you can't one-up, you can't one-up. He says, so never, never tell a two-wisdom-tooth tale. But that's this idea that love is, is constantly one-upping, constantly trying to draw attention to itself. He says it is not arrogant, it is not puffed up. Love is not boastful. The best way to sum this up would be to say that when you're walking in love, you're far more concerned with giving yourself for others and to others than you are about asserting yourself on other people. That has to be our priority, giving our lives away for others. So love does not brag and is not arrogant. Thirdly, he says, love does not act unbecomingly. It does not act unbecomingly, where the verb means, this verb means what it, you know, to speaks, speaks of what is not according to proper form. What is not according to proper form. It has the idea of anything that's disgraceful, anything that's indecent, anything that is dishonorable. It's a, it's a general term, and it's used here without any qualifiers, and so it has a broad range of meaning. Love avoids all manner of unseemliness. It isn't rude. It is not belligerent. It does not cause a scene. It does not act shamefully, but instead is gracious, is gentle, and willing to conform itself to what is proper and what is praiseworthy, to have a sense of decorum, I guess, is, is part of what that entails. When you and I walk in love, we, are, we care too much for others in the glory of Christ to behave in shameful and unseemly ways. This is so important. Love does not act unbecomingly. Fourth, he says, love does not seek its own in verse 5. It does not seek its own. And this is something that Paul's already alluded to back in chapter 10 and verse 24. And again in verse 23, remember we were talking about the believer's liberty in Christ, their freedom in Christ. He says, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Or verse 33 says, I please also all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. When he encourages us to this freedom in Christ, he, he points out that, that those who are, love, who are loving others are not grasping at themselves. This is what love desires. In some way, it's the highest and fullest expression of love because it's modeled after Christ's love of for us as sinners. Christ's love brought him from heaven to earth for us, took him from the cradle to the cross as the final sacrifice for the sins of his people. If there was anyone who did not look out for his own interests, but rather his own interests, excuse me, the interests of others, excuse me, it was Jesus Christ. If there was anyone who didn't look out for his own interests, but ours it was Jesus. And we, he says, are to have that attitude in ourselves. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. And so when we walk in love, we don't clamor for self-gain. We don't grasp at self-justification. We are not uh, insistent on self-esteem. We don't insist on our own way. Rather, we are wholly concerned for the welfare of others. Love is not, um, it is not jealous, it is not brag, it is not, does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. Fifth, love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. 
This has the idea of not easily angered. It's not touchy. Love is not touchy. There is, of course, a place for righteous anger in the scriptures. I think we can make that case, but that's not 99% of the anger that we carry around with us in our hearts. Let's be honest. Most of the anger we, we have in us is born out of a selfish concern for our own rights or our own preferences and expectations, which is always sinful. And when Paul says love is not provoked, here the verb is actually in, a, in the passive voice, which means to imply that, that, that the one whose heart is walking in love is not easily provoked to anger by others. The, the action of the verb is happening to you. You're not easily provoked by those around you. Love soaks the tinder of our flesh so that it does not ignite easily or at all. When others are hot, you can remain cool and you can remain composed. One commentator said that a neighbor can, quote, can get, can get dreadfully on my nerves. <laughs> but love cannot alter the fact that he gets on my nerves, but it can rule out my allowing myself to be provoked by him. You know, we never, we can never, in our home, we try never to allow the phrase, you making me angry, <laughs> Because no one is making you angry. Your flesh is being provoked by others. But that means I'm not walking in love. And so love is not provoked. It is not touchy. It is not easily angered. Next, he says, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not take, into the end of verse 5, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Paul uses the same verb to take into account, this, this notion of taking into account. He uses that elsewhere in the scriptures to describe the crediting of righteousness to us as believers, the righteousness of Christ that we receive on the basis of faith. It's, it's a term that uh, describes kind of the work of bookkeeping, bookkeeping. So writing something down and reckoning it to someone's account. When you and I are walking in love, we don't log every evil that people do and and then hold on to those things. We don't cling to them. Love takes no account of evil. It doesn't harbor a sense of injury or hold a grudge or seek to settle a score. So in many ways, it is connected to this idea of patience and long-suffering that we talked about, talked about earlier last week. Like water off a duck's back, love forgives in order to forget. It covers those things. I mean, think about Christ at the cross. As he hung on the cross... He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If anyone was, was, had a reason to, be, um, to make note of what was happening to him that day, it was our Lord, and yet he in his heart did not log it to their account because they acted out of ignorance. So love does not make a record of, of wrongs. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Sixth, in verse six, excuse me, he ends, he says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. These two really go together. They go together by the, just the grammar and the structure of them. You can clearly playing one off the other. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, 
it rejoices with the truth. When our hearts are filled with Christian love, we rejoice and delight in behavior that reflects the glory of God. That's kind of what he's getting at here. Every forgiveness offered, every um, act of kindness and mercy that is extended, every triumph of righteousness that happens, that is what delights us. That is what rejoices our heart. And as you walk in love, then you refuse to rejoice in or delight over that which is evil. And that can be in a general sense in terms of like war, you know, or the oppression of of those who are poor or the miscarriage of justice that happens. Sometimes that we see that, of course, in a general sense, uh, we don't rejoice over those things. But it can also hit closer to home. For example, we don't rejoice over the fall of a brother or sister in Christ and or we don't rejoice in a child's disobedience or a friend's indecency or anything like that. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. This is sadly uh, a pernicious one because we've become spectators to so much evil in the world. We, we live in a world that is so connected technologically. Everything is played out in front of our eyes almost in real time and we become spectators of, thing, of evil and to, and a, to a, a degree that we have never, no, no, human, uh, no generation, humanly speaking, has ever had to observe in the history of humanity. And, you know, sadly, that is what animates so much of what passes for political discourse these days, if we're honest and make application. A lot of the draw and the appeal of political commentary boils down to these guys despise the right people. And that's what draws us. It's just an arm's length way of resenting and hating the people who hate us. And it puts this thin veneer of respectability over an attitude which is fundamentally contrary to Christian love, rejoicing in unrighteousness. That's just incompatible with Christian love. The unrighteousness that we rejoice over is the other guy's unrighteousness, whoever the other guy is. It's not really any different than the self-righteous Pharisee who stood and prayed, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust adulterers, even this tax collector as he points to this humble man who cries out for God's mercy. Christian love doesn't rejoice over unrighteousness in any context. Rather, it rejoices and delights in truth, in, in, in righteousness, love rejoices in the truth of the gospel and the truth of God. And it refuses, it just refuses to glory in the shame of other people. Wherever it finds that shame. Paul says in Philippians 3 that there are some who set their mind on earthly things. They set their mind on earthly things and then he says their God is their appetite, and their glory is in their shame, that which is shameful and indecent. This is not to be true of us. He says they are enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, follow my example. Follow the pattern you've seen in us. We are to walk in love by not rejoicing in unrighteousness, but rejoicing in the truth. So this is love sketched in the negative space in verses four, uh, yeah, 4, 5, and 6. But in verse 7, there's a third kind of 
a portrait uh, or dimension of this portrait of love that he paints. And we see in verse 7, love accented with some final flourishing pen strokes. So we see love in the positive space, love in the negative, drawn in the negative space. And now we see, lastly, love accented. Just the kind of final finishing touches, if you will, on this portrait of love with some final flourishing pen strokes in verse 7. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. These, these final short clauses bring this portrait of love to its summary conclusion, reiterating that there is nothing, there is nothing that love that is wrought by the Spirit of God cannot face. There is nothing that the love cannot face. Love has a resolve in the present that's fueled by its absolute confidence in the future because of the ceaseless love of God that comes in Christ. That, that's, the, that's really the, what, what this comes to. There's, there's a structure to this. The first and the fourth items are kind of things of the present, bearing all things, enduring all things. But the believing all things and hoping all things here in the middle is looking to the future. So it is a present resolve because of future grace. And so we're able to bear with everything. Paul's own life and ministry is proof of concept. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about all that he has endured in ministry, all the beatings and the imprisonments and the, the sleepless nights and the exposure and the hunger and thirst and all this stuff, he says, I can endure all that because, because of love. Because of love. As one commentator so wisely said, Many years ago, when love has no evidence, it believes the best. When that evidence is, con ad is adverse, it hopes for the best. And when hopes are repeatedly disappointed, it courageously waits. Kind of tracking how love never fails. As Shakespeare wrote in one of his sonnets, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends when with the remover to remove. He says, oh no, it is an ever fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. He got it. He got it. He understood biblical love, or at least the way he describes it. So as we look at this portrait, these characteristics of love, as I'm looking at them, I can't help but notice how perfectly they embody the life of Christ. They, they just embody the life of Christ. It's as if Paul followed Christ around throughout his ministry and then whittled down everything he observed about his character into a, a, a baker's dozen worth of concise descriptors. Just substitute the noun love in these verses for Jesus. Just put Jesus in its place. And then reread the passage and see how true each statement rings. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind and is not jealous. Jesus is not brag and is not arrogant. He does not act unbecomingly. Jesus does not seek his own. He is not provoked. Jesus doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Jesus doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then we carried it into verse 8. Jesus never fails. It checks out. <laughs> it's legit. We cannot miss Paul's point here. Because as we noted at the outset, Jesus has given you and me as his disciples a new commandment that we love one another even as he has loved us. 
And so this portrait of Jesus is really sketched with the aim of our imitation. And so what we ought to do is substitute our own name in the place of love and then reread the passage. Jeff is patient. Jeff is kind. Jeff is not jealous. Jeff does not brag and is not arrogant. Jeff does not act unbecomingly and so on and so forth. And then with humble and contrite hearts, we need to repent and seek the Lord's forgiveness and plead for fresh grace because we do not walk in love in these specific ways the way we ought. This is our mandate. This is, we said at the outset, our privilege. Because, as we'll see in verses 8 to 13, when all the things of this present age have come and gone, when everything that's left is dust and ashes, love is what will remain. It is heaven's life manifest on earth now, and it will be heaven's life for all eternity, perfect love. We must, above all, then make, as Paul says, make love our aim in the beginning of chapter 14. Pursue love, the one thing we cannot live without. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to love us with a a love like the love we've just described, your patience, your loving kindness, your not taking to account the wrongs that we do against you as your children. You're, you're not being provoked to anger by our rebellion and sin. You're bearing with us in all these things. You're hoping, knowing that you will that work which you began, you will complete. You're being faithful to the end, enduring all things to the finish and bringing us to yourself. We thank you, Lord, that you have loved us with such a great love. And we pray that we would bring forth the fruits of love in our lives insofar as we draw near to you. We know that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot, certainly cannot do this without the Spirit of God at work within us. And so if there's any here this morning who have not come to the end of themselves and trusted in you with all their heart and soul and enthroned themselves in your mercy, we pray that you would draw them to yourself work your love within the soil of their hearts that they might bring forth the fruits of love that we see here. And may this be true of our church so that by us, all men, all men will know that we are your disciples. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.